Amen. We truly do have a great God. And uh, sometimes I think we forget that. I think we've been kind of culturally conditioned to minimize his greatness, uh, even in our churches. And we certainly uh, don't want to be guilty of that. We want to be lifting him up and exalting him. And uh, Jesus said, if I be high and lifted up, I will draw all men unto me. Uh, And so we praise the Lord for the opportunity to just take and uh, take the word of God and to exalt our Savior. Well, we've been in a series for these last several weeks now on beginnings. And so if you're new to the service today, uh, we started with uh, taking a look at the beginning of God's power displayed. And so when God came on the scene, uh, he burst onto the scene with creation and uh, created matter and then formed and organized that matter into uh, to fulfill his purpose and for his enjoyment to bring him honor and glory. Uh, and then we looked at that. The next week we looked at the beginning of man. And so God and man created man specifically to fellowship with him, to bring him glory and honor. Uh, then last week we looked at the beginning of sin, uh, which is really... Uh, you know, something that's misconstrued today, something that's not really fully understood, uh, how loathsome it is to God because of the great cost that, that, it, that it put upon him and what it co- required uh, to bring about our salvation. And so we, this morning, look at the beginning of God's grace displayed. I'll explain why I worded it that way in just a moment. But the beginning uh, of God's grace displayed, and uh, thank God for his grace. Uh, we're saved by it, would be lost without it. We couldn't be sustained in life without the grace of God in our lives. And so if you would take your Bibles this morning to Genesis chapter 3. Uh, Genesis chapter 3, and we're going to read uh, a few verses here as we get started, beginning in verse number 8. As you find your way there, the beginning of the chapter starts with where we started last week with the beginning of sin, uh, where sin is introduced into the Garden of Eden by Satan. Satan has fallen. Uh, he has now come into the garden, uh, this perfect place uh, that God created, and he's come to Adam and to Eve, and he's deceived Eve, and he's tempted, uh, and Adam has rebelled against God, uh, and sin has entered into this place that was perfection, a place that God came and walked, and the place that God came to fellowship with them. Uh, and in the first part of this chapter, there's been that process, the temptation the succumbing to temptation, the willful act of Adam to, uh, he was not deceived, he, he chose uh, to, to sin against God. Uh, and in verse number 8, they are now feeling the pressure of the shame of their sin. And by the way, if you get to the point where you don't feel shamed by your sin, you're on pretty dangerous ground. Uh, and so they feel shame, the shame of their sin. Uh, and God is now coming back down to the garden, which seems to be uh, his normal pattern uh, of interaction with them. In verse number eight, uh, they're in their sinful state and they heard the voice of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And Adam and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God amongst the trees of the garden. Never before had they hid themselves from God. Never before had they feared God in this fashion. They had a respect and a reverence for God, certainly. Uh, but now their shame causes them to fear uh, his presence. And the Lord God called unto Adam and said unto him, Where art thou? And he said, I heard thy voice in the garden, and I was afraid 
because I was naked and I hid myself. And he said, Who told thee that thou wast naked? Hast thou eaten of the tree whereof I commanded thee that thou shouldest not eat? And the man said, The woman whom thou gavest to me be with me. She gave me of the tree, and I did eat. And the Lord God said unto the woman, What is this that thou hast done? And the woman said, The serpent beguiled me, and I did eat. In verses 14 through 19, God proclaims uh, the Adamic covenant. He also is pronouncing the curse of sin upon the earth. He gives the first, as we looked at last week, the first prophecy of the virgin birth of the Lord Jesus Christ when he said in verse 15 uh, that I will put and I will put enmity between thee and the woman and between thy seed and her seed uh, and it shall bruise thy head and thou shalt bruise his heel uh, her seed the biblically speaking uh, the the woman does not have seed uh, and so he's telling us right from the start that this sinful nature that has been brought upon mankind by Adam and will be passed down, the Savior cannot have that nature. He has to be born without it. He cannot have a human father. And so here the prophecy uh, that, that, it, that will be of the woman's seed. In other words, without a human father. Uh, in verse number 20, we see the faith of Abraham. Uh, and Adam called his wife's name Eve because she was the mother of all living, expressing what was to come as God is, is uh, dealing with them in their sin. And unto Adam, in verse 21, also, and to his wife, did the Lord God make coats of skins and clothe them. They're in their sin. They've tried to sew the, the fig leaves of their own self-righteousness together to hide their shame and could not. God slays the innocent to cover the sins of the guilty. The lamb covering, the skin covering required that blood be shed and it symbolically covered uh, man's nakedness or shame uh, signifying that sacrifice of blood would be required for the redemption of man's sin in the form of the Lord Jesus Christ. This my friends is the beginning of the concept of grace in its display within the scripture. Let's pray as we begin, and then we'll jump right into this this morning. Father, thank you for again for our time together. Thank you for your grace. Lord, help me to give what you've given, to, dis to explain and to describe it in a way that will make sense to us, that will resonate with us, and that will further our dependence upon you, or our realization of our dependence upon you. And Lord, may we value what you've given us and sacrificed on our behalf. In Jesus' name and amen. You know, the concept of grace is something that we see here from the beginning. You could argue that it even starts uh, with the very act of creation. And I'm, I'm not going to argue that point this morning. I think in relation to our need for salvation, it begins here. It is a concept that it is that has begun. I, I, was very, I was very surprised, honestly, this week when I really delved in a little deeper to this that the word grace in the word of God does not appear until Genesis chapter 6 and verse number 8. There is no mention of it. It is not recorded one time. I was really surprised when I went to the Gospels who tell the story of grace. For by grace he is saved in Ephesians, are you saved in Ephesians 2.8. Our salvation is provided by God's grace. We access that by our faith. We're saved by grace through faith. But in the Gospels telling us the story of the Gospel, 
uh, of the good news, of the life of Jesus, the sacrifice of Jesus, the word grace does not appear until Luke chapter 2 and verse 40. Matthew does not record the word grace one time. Mark does not record it one time. Luke records it only once. In Luke chapter 2 and verse 40, when Jesus is a child uh, and, and the, the Lord says that, uh, that, or the Bible tells us there that he as a child found the grace and approval of the Lord. We'll look at that a little, a little bit here in a moment. In the Gospel of John, it, it appears only three times in chapter 1. It, it appears numerous times throughout uh, the rest of the New Testament. But in the Gospels themselves, in the story of grace... It appears only those four times. As we look this morning at the beginning of God's grace displayed, I use that terminology much like I did God's power displayed because God's power is eternal. It has no beginning. And so it wasn't that God showed up and began to, uh, and all of a sudden was powerful. God has always had power and same is true of the grace of God. This is not the beginning of God's grace. Grace is the essence of who God is. It's part of his character and his nature. You cannot have God without grace any more than you can have God without holiness and justice and mercy uh, and love and all of the other attributes that compose him. But as we understand grace this morning, we need to understand biblically uh, what we're talking about. And so I'm going to have to take some time to really develop the, 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 the word and what it means and how uh, we interact with it. So bear with me through the first part of this, uh, if you will, and we'll try to do, I'll try to do the best that I can to uh, make it clear, uh, though I have to give you a lot of information kind of to lay it out there. I don't want to just say, here's the sense of it without proving the point. And so bear with me while I prove the point this morning. Uh, and the sense that grace is an essential characteristic of, of who God is, grace is eternal. But in the sense of grace being essential to salvation and to service, grace appears immediately after the fall of man as we've looked at, at it. So in, in Genesis chapter 6 and verse 8, it is the first recorded time that the word grace is used. The, the, the Bible there says that Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. And so Noah is in the midst of this wicked, perverse culture and world. There is none that are righteous. It's so vile that God is going to destroy it in its entirety. And God commissions Noah uh, to be the Savior, the picture of Christ that is going to uh, carry them through this time of the flood. And he indicates that Noah found grace. In that sense, it means that Noah found favor. When no one else could find favor... Noah found favor. Uh, and so God displayed that to him. Now, this is going to be a little bit technical for a few minutes here. Uh, so bear with me and listen closely. Grace defined, not by human definition, not by secular definition or modern definition, but biblically defined, what is grace? Grace in the Old Testament, in its first use in Genesis 6, 8, it is the Hebrew word uh, Cain. And all of the times that the word grace is used in the Old Testament, that is the Hebrew word that is translated grace with one exception. The one singular exception is found in Ezra chapter 9 in verse number 8. And the Bible says in Ezra chapter 9 in verse number 8, 
And now for a little space, grace hath been showed from the Lord our God to leave us a remnant to escape and to give us a nail in his holy place that our God may lighten our eyes and give us a little reviving in our bondage. Now, the significance uh, is notable, but both of these words come from the same uh, Hebrew root word, and they, they're, they're derived from that. Now, the word Cain translated grace exclusively, except for that passage in Ezra, is from the word uh, tikana, which means graciousness, uh, and it means, uh, and, or, and the word in Ezra means causatively. It is the favor of God for the cause of preserving a remnant. So the one exception in Ezra, God displayed his grace for the purpose or the cause of preserving a remnant in their dispersion when they were in captivity because of their sin. The rest of the times that the word is used, it is from the word uh, that, that, that means simply uh, kindness or favor, and they both come from the word caught on, which means this, to bend or to stoop in kindness and mercy to an inferior. And so it is favor from a superior to an inferior. So if I were to this morning, uh, you know, put two people up here, I could pull anybody else from the auditorium and come up and have you come up and say, okay, you're in my favor. That's not grace. We're equals. But if I were to bring someone in that was at a higher stage in life, someone that was in a, uh, a position of respect and esteem and authority, uh, you know, that, that was honorable, uh, and they were to come and they were to show kindness and to grant favor to someone uh, that was clearly uh, not in the same realm that they are, then that would begins to kind of get the picture and the vision of grace. Now we see that in our text in Genesis chapter 3 and verse number 8. Uh, whenever, we, whenever we look and we see that they're in their sin, they realize the shame of their sin and their nakedness. They've tried to take and by their own works fashion a covering uh, for that sin and the shame of it. Uh, and they heard the voice of God, of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. God up until this point, had come down into the garden in its perfection. If there was ever a time when there was literally, or most almost literally, a heaven on earth, it would have been the Garden of Eden before the fall. And so as God comes and walks in the garden with them, he comes and walks with them and has sweet fellowship with them. They're fulfilling the purpose for which God created them. They have joy. They have fulfillment. They have God is fulfilled. God is honored. Uh, everything is perfect. Everything is wonderful. So when God leaves and comes to the garden, it's almost as if he just simply stepped out into his beautiful garden in his back, in the back of his house. But now it's been ruined. Now it's been decimated. Now when he comes, it's not beautiful and fresh and clean. Now it's putrid and nauseating with the stench of the sin of man. God now has to stoop down from the glory of heaven to walk upon his tarnished creation to seek out an unworthy man in Adam. He is stooping from glory to someone who is unworthy of being in his presence. 
Up until this point, you could argue that Adam was worthy of being in his presence, not because of who Adam was, but because he was pristine in what God created him to be. He is no longer worthy to be in the presence of God. And so God stoops down to him and seeks him out. And both of these words mean to bend or to stoop in kindness and mercy to an inferior. Clearly, we are inferior to God. And God came to us anyway. In the New Testament, the first use, as I mentioned, of, uh, of the word grace is in Luke chapter 2 in verse number 40. And just uh, so that we get the picture here. And the child grew and waxed strong in spirit, filled with wisdom, and the grace of God was upon him. Uh, and so this is Jesus as a child. Now in John's gospel, uh, the only other three times that the word grace appears in the four gospels, it, it occurs in John chapter 1 and verse 14 and verse 16 and verse 17. And verse 14, and the word was made flesh and dwelt among us. And we beheld his glory as the glory of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. In verse 16, and in fullness, uh, let's go to verse 15, John the Baptist speaks, John bear, or he speaks of John the Baptist, John bear witness of him, cried saying, this is he of whom I spake, uh, he that cometh after me is preferred before me, for he was before me. In other words, Jesus existed before I did, even though John was born six months before Jesus was. And his fullness have we all received in grace for grace. For the law was given by Moses, but grace and truth came by Jesus Christ. The word grace in the New Testament, like the Old Testament, is used exclusively with one exception. The one exception is found where a different Greek word is used uh, to, for grace is found in James chapter 1. In verse number 11, where he says, For the sun is no sooner risen with a burning heat, but it withereth the grass, and the flower thereof falleth, and the grace of the fashion of it perisheth, so also shall the rich man fade away in his ways. And so let's understand the Greek context and, uh, and concept of this word. So when we look here and we talk about the, this New Testament word, it is the word charis, with the one exception in, uh, in uh, James, which is the word euphoria, which means simply beauty. So the point in James chapter 1 and verse 11 is that the rich are here for a short time, beautiful as a flower in the field, but sooner than later that flower is going to wither away and its beauty is going to be gone. Every other use of the word grace throughout the New Testament is charis. It is... Uh, it, it means this, that which affords joy, pleasure, delight, loveliness, goodwill, loving kindness, or favor. Now the word affords in this context means to produce. So grace is that which produces joy. Grace produces pleasure. Grace produces delight. It produces loveliness. It produces goodwill. It produces all of those character traits that make up the nature of God in fallen man. It cannot be something that we just decide, hey, I'm going to do better. I'm going to turn over a new leaf. It is something that must happen supernaturally within us. Paul speaks to this concept, though he does not use the word to describe it, uh, the word grace to describe it. He, de he describes what it is in practicality uh, to our lives in Philippians chapter 1 and verse 6 as he speaks to the Philippian church. 
being confident of this very thing, that he which hath begun a good work in you will perform it until the day of Jesus Christ. My friends, this morning, I can no more save myself, you can no more save yourself, uh, or, or no more live the good life or the life that God wanted you to live in your own power and strength than you can save yourself in your own power and strength. It is God's grace that saves, it is God's grace that keeps, it is God's grace that develops, it is God's grace that performs in us Amen. what God wants to do through us. And so uh, we look at this and it speaks of his merciful kindness by which God exerting his holy influence upon souls turns them to Christ, then keeps them, strengthens, increases them in Christian faith, in knowledge and affection and kindles in them to the a fire to the exercise of Christian virtues. It is the grace of God working in us that accomplishes that. To put it more simply, it is, and if you want a really simple definition to jot down that, can, that makes all of this in a very concise statement, it's this. It is God's influence upon the heart then reflected in the life. It is what God has done in me reflected through me. It is when, I, when people stop seeing me and start seeing Jesus. Because Jesus has changed who I am inside. And that's what the Christian life is about. And we look and we see that God is displayed to the lost through, uh, through us to a lost world. Now, the importance of grace is this, for by grace are you saved in Ephesians 2, chapter 2 and verse 8. For by grace are you saved through faith. He's not talking about merely salvation in the sense of I'm saved from hell, I have eternal life. He's talking about full salvation. He did not save you then to live a defeated and a corrupt and a perverse life. He saved us to be holy as he is holy. He saved us to live the way that he created us to live way back in the garden before the fall. Now, I can't do that in my own strength. I can't do that in my own power. Neither can you. But with the Holy Spirit of God living within my heart, I can get victory over the things in my life that destroy it. How does someone who is overcome with an angry spirit or a bitter spirit or a, a, a controlling addiction, how do they get past that? Uh, well, some can be disciplined enough to, to get some victory over it for a while, but if you really want liberty and freedom from it, that comes only through the grace of God in the person of Jesus Christ. Amen. And so the problem... Uh, with uh, all of the secular mentality and programs that are out there to help the afflicted uh, is that it's relying upon man's own ability uh, to uh, get over things on their own rather than to put their faith and trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus has to transform us from the inside out. And so external pressure uh, can conform me for a while, but transformation comes from the heart. And we look at the grace of God now displayed, what we see is that God, in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ, like God came to Adam and Eve in the garden, Jesus said in Luke chapter 19 and verse number 10, for the Son of Man has come to seek and to save that which was lost. 
He came to seek us out. God came in the garden to Adam and he sought him. You're in your sin. You're hiding in your, behind your own self-righteousness. I'm not going to leave you in this condition. I'm coming to find you. And I'm going to confront your sin. And you're going to have to deal with the consequence of your sin. But in my grace, I'm going to sacrifice on your behalf. And I'm going to cover your sin so that I can set you forth on a productive life. Amen. It was not an easy life. It was not a life that was uncomplicated. Sin complicates everything. Sin destroys everything. I, uh, I told you a week or two ago about my wife's lovely lemon tree that she planted. We planted a couple years ago and, and she loved that tree. It never did quite get to the point where it produced uh, and the new growth on it every year put it some pretty impressive thorns for such a small tree. Uh, and and uh, the, the freeze last year killed it or earlier this year killed it. Uh, and I finally, uh, a couple of days ago, took it down. Not that that was a very big deal. It was only a couple inches around at the trunk. Uh, but when I took it down, I'm mowing around it. And I went to pick it up and throw it in the pile. And I'm telling you, some of those old thorns remembered uh, that, that they, were, they were put there to afflict us for our sin, right? Uh, and I'm, it fought back. And it, it jabbed me right up here at the, at the joint above my thumb, uh, apparently a lot deeper than what I realized because for the last two days I haven't hardly been able to move my thumb or put any pressure on it without it hurting like crazy. There's not anything broke off in there, it's just, but it's a thorn and it's Adam's fault. Yeah. And Adam uh, caused that beautiful tree to produce thorns and it still produces thorns and sometimes it bites you or stabs you. And it just, it's there. And so we have to look and understand that because God's grace came and found them and sacrificed for them and clothed them, that does not mean that all of a sudden all of their problems are erased and that they don't still have to work and eke out a living by the sweat of their brow uh, and endure uh, pain and child labor and have to do all of the things that we have to endure on a sin-cursed earth. Uh, it all goes back to there, but God from that very instant said, I'm going to seek you. I'm going to sacrifice for you. I'm going to cover for you. I'm not going to cover for you in the sense that I'm going to dismiss your sin. I'm going to cover your sin by the blood of the innocent. Amen. And Jesus reiterates that in Luke chapter 19 and verse 10. I came to seek and to save that which was lost. And so when we understand uh, this, this grace from the Lord, we understand that Jesus came down like God came down in the garden. Jesus came down and he put on human flesh. And the word became flesh and walked among us. Jesus came and he became man. And Jesus walked and lived in sinless perfection. And Jesus was offered up as a sacrifice on a cross. Shedding his blood. Like the lamb's blood was shed in the garden so that our sins might be covered. That they may be paid for. A final atonement. Not a repetitive atonement, but once for all, Jesus died to pay for the sins of mankind and to reconcile man to God. In Romans chapter 5 and verse 10, we see this concept as he says, For then... For if when we were the enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, so much more being reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. We see that we were the enemy of God and now we are his son. We were vile and now we are loved and we are longed for. 
In 2 Corinthians chapter 5, in verse number uh, 18, he says, And all things are of God, who hath reconciled us to himself by Jesus Christ, and hath given to us the ministry of reconciliation, to wit that God was in Christ, reconciling the world unto himself, not imputing their trespasses unto them, or not putting on their account their own sin, he put it on his, on his account. And hath committed it to us the word of reconciliation. Now then, we are ambassadors for Christ, as though God did beseech you by us, we pray you in Christ's stead, be ye reconciled to God. He's paid the price. He's longing for us uh, to enjoy what he's provided for us. In Colossians chapter number 1, uh, and, uh, and verse number 21, I believe. Colossians chapter 1 and verse 21 uh, he said it this way, uh, and you that were sometime alienated and enemies in your mind by wicked works, yet now hath he reconciled. We were alienated from God, born in our sin, cut off from God, and he loved us enough that he came and found us. Amen. He stooped down from heaven to put on human flesh, to walk amongst us, and to love us. And so when we look at, uh, at grace, and we all, if you've been in church at any time, no doubt you've heard the acrostic of grace, God's riches at Christ's expense. And truly, Jesus had to pay the price to satisfy a holy God in payment for our sin. Uh, and he's done that, that we might be reconciled to God. He stooped from the splendors of heaven to walk amongst us, to sacrifice himself on our behalf, that we might uh, be reconciled to God. That's grace defined. Now, how does that apply to my everyday life? I want you to look at three primary things this morning. God's grace satisfies. Now, I don't have time this morning to uh, develop these in their entirety. Uh, I would say this morning that when we look at this, uh, we could make much. I, I'm going to give you about three things under each point. This could be a very, very long list. I don't want us to just think, sometimes we have the tendency, okay, pastor preached this, those three points, he gave us some subpoints here, uh, and, and that's the end of it. This isn't the end of it. This is just a starting point. But the grace of God satisfies. What does it satisfy? Well, it satisfies everything that's lacking in our life. It has the potential to satisfy everything that's wrong with us. But I'm going to just focus in on three primary things this morning. Number one, I would say this, that grace satisfies, uh, that the holiness of God is satisfied. God's holiness was violated when we sinned in the garden. God's heaven, God's plan on earth, everything that God set in perfection was ruined when man sinned. The holiness of God on display in the earth uncorrupted and in its perfection was tarnished. Doesn't mean that God doesn't display his holiness in the earth. It means it's not as he intended it. And his grace has the ability to satisfy that holiness that's been betrayed. Why? Because the holiness, the grace of God can take an unholy man and then restore him in the eyes of God to a state of holiness so that man once again is worthy of being in the presence of his maker. The process of the Christian life, being saved, trusting the Lord Jesus Christ in grace is the beginning of his working in us, not the end of it. 
It is the beginning of his developing us and changing us and growing us into what he wants us to be. And that holiness of God that was crushed at the garden, that was compromised in the garden uh, on the side of creation was satisfied. Not only that, but we see that the justice of God was satisfied. And again, these are things that I've, I've preached recently and they're worked into other concepts of the series. So I can't belabor the point this morning, but the justice of God is satisfied. Listen, God's justice had to be satisfied. It would not be satisfactory to his holiness for sin to just simply to be dismissed. When we come before God, the pronouncement from God as our judge is not case dismissed. Sentence has been pronounced and carried out. It's just been pronounced and carried out on someone else on our behalf. God did not look and say, oh man, you've sinned and you've ruined everything. It's not that big of a deal. I'm just going to throw it out and everything's going to be okay. No, he said nothing's going to be okay. Nothing is right. This has to be fixed. Sin has to be punished. Justice has to be served. And it's going to be served on you or upon Jesus. Jesus paid the price. Amen. Jesus stepped in my, my stead. Jesus came and looked up and said, I, Father, am willing to be their sin. Punish me. Amen. Pour out your wrath upon me. What it would take you and I to pay for, it would take an eternity for us to pay for what Jesus paid for on the cross of Calvary. Such fury, such power, the wrath of God on his broken body. And we look and we understand that it is the grace of God that made him willing to stoop down to earth so that the justice of God could be satisfied. I would say, thirdly, that the hopelessness of man is satisfied. We're hopeless without him. Amen. The problem with a lot of people in the world that won't come to Christ and accept him as their savior is that they just simply fail to see that they're hopeless. They still think they can do something about their condition. They think that they can go to church enough times. They think they can be baptized enough times. They think they can uh, go to, uh, to, uh, through a process of, uh, of confessing their sin and paying for their sin and making atonement for their sin in some way uh, and that, that God's going to be satisfied. They still have hope that something human can save them. The reality is, is that without the Lord Jesus Christ, we're hopeless. From the moment that we sinned in the garden as a race of people, that as human beings, we are forever without hope outside of the Lord Jesus Christ. I'm saying this morning that the hopelessness of man's condition is satisfied by the grace of God. The justice of God is satisfied by his grace. The holiness of God is satisfied by his grace. Secondly, this morning we see that grace, God's grace summons. He said again in Luke chapter 19 and verse number 10, for the son of man has come to seek and to save that which was lost. Genesis chapter three and verse eight, and they heard the voice of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. Uh, and the Lord in verse nine called unto Adam. Uh, and 
in uh, John chapter number 6. Uh, the Bible tells us there that when we come to Christ that, uh, that we can only come to Christ as the Spirit of God uh, and the person of God draws us. In John uh, chapter number 6 and verse number 44, the Bible says, No man can come to me except the Father which hath sent me draw him, and I will raise him up at the last day. Listen, I can't just come to Christ one day and say, hey, I don't want to go to hell. I think I'll pray this magic prayer and I'll get saved. Yeah. I must be drawn to the Spirit. The point is there must be the convicting power of the Spirit of God taking place in my life in order for me to put my faith and trust in Him. Amen. This is not uh, a fire insurance policy created by man devised from the scriptures. It is the plan of salvation that God gave in his infinite wisdom when he said that man in your fallen and sinful state is hopeless and helpless without me and I love you and I've come to seek and to save that which was lost. And if you seek me, I'm seeking you and I'll speak to you and I'll draw you and if you'll repent of your sin and express your faith in me, I'll save your soul. We come and understand this morning that God summons us. God, holy God, stooped down, first of all, to sinful man. We saw that again in Genesis 3.8. Holy God stooped down to sinful man. We spent enough time on that concept. We should have that by now. In Genesis chapter 3 and verse 9, righteousness sought out unrighteousness. And the Lord God called unto Adam. It's the first time that God called out to Adam and Adam was unrighteous. You stop and think about that. Every other time that God came to the garden, man was looking for him. This time man was hiding from him. Every other time when God spoke up, it was Adam. This time he did not call out to a perfect creation. This time he called out to a fallen son. This time there was disappointment in his voice. This time there was heartbreak in his voice. This time there was the realization of what was going to have to happen in order for man to be saved. Righteousness sought out unrighteousness. And by the way, God sought us out when we were unrighteous. God loved us when we were unworthy. Romans 5.8 tells us, but God commendeth or demonstrated his love toward us and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. He did not wait until we had the right notion. He did not wait until uh, we decided that we wanted to look for him. He loved and he sacrificed for his creation. Righteousness seeks out unrighteousness. Listen, God's not waiting for you to turn over a new leaf this morning. God's waiting for you to surrender. God's not waiting for you to decide this morning that I think that I'm good enough now that I can come to Christ and ask for his forgiveness. No, God wants you to turn to him when he speaks to your heart, when he convicts your soul, no matter how destitute you are, no matter how, uh, how defiled you feel or may be in reality, God comes to you in, the worst, in your worst imaginable condition and does not say, if you'll do better, I'll save you. He says, I'll take you just where you are. And I'll love you. And I've, I've paid your price. And I'll draw you to me. And I'll lift you up. And I'll give you strength. And I'll change your heart. And I'll develop in you a character that resembles the character of the Lord Jesus that sacrificed himself for you. 
He that hath begun a good work in you will perform it. I can't perform it. You can't perform it. He's performed it. God's grace this morning, my friends, is summoning you. He's calling out to you. He's pleading with you to just surrender, to stop making excuses, to stop feeling like you're not good enough. You're not. No one is. And you don't have to be. You can't be. No one can be. And he came and he looked for you anyway. And he's standing this morning crying out to you. Thirdly, we see here that the helplessness of man is helped by an unlimited God. Man is helpless. God is not limited in any way. Do you realize this morning that the only thing that can limit the power of God is the sin in the hearts of his children? God is unlimited in power. Grace satisfies, grace summons. Thirdly, this morning, consider this truth that God's grace supplies. What does it supply? Here we are in our sinful state. Here we are in our hopeless and helpless condition. Here we are needing someone that is far superior than us to get up off his throne and to stoop down to where we are. We can never lift ourselves to him, but he can come to us. And he stood up and he came down. In Ephesians chapter 2, and we all know the verses, most everyone in here could quote them. Verses 8 and 9, For by grace are ye saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. I'm just saying this morning that God's grace supplies, salvation is supplied to sinners. Pastor, I'm not a sinner. Yeah, you are, but if you think you're not, that's a whole other sermon. But God's grace will be waiting for you when you decide that you are. Amen. When you realize that you are. Salvation is supplied to sinners. Listen, God, God can't supply anything to somebody that thinks they don't need it. I have to recognize my need. Salvation is supplied to sinners. We see sanctification then is supplied to saints. Once I trust Jesus as my Savior, Pastor, then what? What does that mean next? That means that you begin to grow. That means you begin to take of the sincere milk of the word. It's like a brand new baby that has to be fed or they can't, they have to be nourished or they can't grow. They have to be loved and they have to be nurtured or they can't uh, survive. And Genesis, or excuse me, in Acts chapter number 20 uh, and verse number 32, uh, the apostle Paul speaking uh, and he says here uh, that, and now brethren, I commend you to God and to the word of his grace, which is able to build you up and to give you an inheritance among all them that are sanctified. Uh, in chapter 26 of Acts, in verse number 18, uh, he puts it this way when he says, He came to open their eyes and to turn them from darkness to light and from the power of Satan unto God, that they may receive forgiveness of sins and inheritance among them which are sanctified by faith that is in me. In 1 Corinthians chapter number 6 uh, and verse number 11, uh, he is talking to and giving a long list of all of their sin and their problems and how vile they were whenever God found them and what he lifted them out of. And verse number 11, he gives in verses 9 through 10 a list and then verse 11, and such were some of you. 
but ye are washed, but ye are sanctified, but ye are justified in the name of the Lord Jesus by the Spirit of our God. It is Jesus, it is the Holy Spirit that lifts us, that gives that life, that empowers us uh, to become what God wants us to be. In Hebrews chapter number 10 uh, and verse number 10, uh, he tells us that when we come to him, uh, that by which all, by, by the which or the blood, uh, by the which we are sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. And I'm just saying this morning that God's grace supplied, it supplied salvation, it supplies salvation to sinner and it supplies sanctification to saints. It is the process in which God taking you who have trusted in him as his savior and he sets you apart as his child and he begins to invest in you and to train you. And he's not only said you can, uh, you can come and you can, uh, and you can be my child. He says you can be an inheritance. You can share in the inheritance of Christ. An elevated state. Man, pastor, I know a lot of people that could never God, surely God can't save everyone. Surely God wouldn't save someone like that. I know people that are so vile. If you knew what they did, you wouldn't think that God could save them. There's an old tradition about the life of Jonathan Edwards that says this. And he was, the, of course, the, 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 the preacher that, that preached the famous sermon in the 1700s, Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. He was also the third president of Princeton University. And most people don't realize this today. But all of our Ivy League schools and their founding were founded to, to train preachers. My, how far are they fallen? Amen. Jonathan Edwards is said to have had a daughter that had an ungovernable temper. And as so often is the case, the infirmity was not known to those outside of his household. After a while, a worthy young man fell in love with the daughter and sought her hand in marriage. He said, you can't have her. The young man was befuddled. He was a godly Christian young man. There's no reason that anyone should object to him. Jonathan Edwards was very abrupt in his answer. He comes again after a while, but I love her, the young man replied. He said, you can't have her, said Edwards. But she loves me, replied the young man. Again, Edwards said, you can't have her. Why, said the young man, because she's not worthy of you. And we look, and we see that he looked confused and said, but She's a Christian, isn't she? And he said, yes, she's a Christian. But the grace of God can live with some people with whom no one else ever could. <laughs> Listen, there are a lot of us that kind of be kind of tough to get along with. But God and his grace loves you anyway. Amen. We come and we understand that God didn't come to love the lovely, but the sinner. And he makes us saints. And he sustains us. Thirdly, along this grace supply, and what does it supply? It supplies sustaining power to the sanctified. Who are the sanctified? Pastor, I don't feel sanctified. Sanctified is not a condition, it's a position in this sense. When he saved me, he set me apart to serve him. Amen. When he saved me, he set me apart to honor him. And he said, I know you don't have anything in you that's honorable. So I'm going to put something in you honorable. I'm going to grow you. I'm going to develop you. I'm going to teach you. I'm going to train you. Hence Philippians chapter 1 and verse 6. That he that hath begun a good work in you 
shall perform it until the day of Jesus Christ. We just need to stay surrendered so that God can do in our lives what needs to be done. Jesus looked down and he saw us in our sin. God came to the garden and he found them in their sin. And that uh, wonderful plan was put into place and sprung into action until Jesus fulfilled it on the cross and risen from the grave and and sitting at the right hand of the Father, preparing a place for us and praying for us, making intercession for us. When we were in our sin, Jesus stood up and said, I'll go. Jesus looked down and said, I'll give everything. I'll shed my blood. Jesus said, I'll govern. I'll take responsibility for them. I'll teach them. I'll train them. I'll develop them. And I would just say this morning that the grace of God comes and finds us and loves us and supplies us and cares for us, not because we're worthy, not because we deserve it, but because he loves us that much. Amen. There's a story told that this took place in the 70s. An old farmer in the Philippines named Felix Hardio. He was 60 years old. He just worked out in the fields and saved his money for years to try to buy a carabao, farm animal, to do the heavy work. He saved and he saved and finally saved the amount of money that was needed. Set out to begin looking for the animal, found just the animal that he needed and tried to pay the man the money and the man wouldn't accept it. Said, sir, your money's not any good anymore. And this poor man had been out in the jungles and farming his little patch of ground and cut off from the world and society. He found out that the Philippine paper bills had to be exchanged for a new currency. And the deadline to turn that money in and have it equally exchanged had passed. His money was as worthless as Confederate dollar bills in the United States after the Civil War. And so in 1975, he wrote a letter with the help of some schoolboys in the village to his president. And after all, he thought, I'm only a poor, ignorant rice farmer. And the answer came back and it said this. The law must be followed because the deadline for exchanging bills has already passed. The government can no longer change your bills with the new, the new ones. Even the president of the Philippines is not exempt from this rule. But the letter didn't end there. It added, however, because I believe that you really worked hard to save this money, I am changing them with the new ones from my own personal funds. I hope that you will be able to buy your carabao the letter was signed, your friend, Ferdinand E. Marcos, president of the Philippines. He was not deserving. He was at fault. The law couldn't be bent. It had to be satisfied. But someone cared enough to pay the price. And Jesus cared enough to pay your price. And he cared enough to give us new life. He cared enough to give us liberty and freedom. He cared enough to bring us into his family and to make us a joint heir with his son, Jesus. I'm not just on the outside looking in. I'm part of the family. And I'm not a distant relative. I am an heir with Christ. He wants to give that to you this morning. If you've never trusted Jesus Christ as your Savior, understand this morning that you in your sin are powerless and hopeless and destitute. But if the Spirit of God is convicting your heart, 
May I assure you that his love for you doesn't care where you are. It only cares that you're responding. And he's come from heaven to the garden and he sought you out. The question that needs to be answered this morning is will I go away, walk out those doors distraught, distressed, in fear? Or will I go out a child of God, redeemed and sanctified with a new father, with a new family, with a new position in Christ that only God can give? He wants you to have that this morning. See, the thing about the grace of God is it's always available. It's always around us. We can receive it or we can reject it. We can be sustained by it or we can suffer without it. But we can choose this morning as God speaks to our heart. It's readily, abundantly available. But it must be accessed by faith. For by grace are you saved. Amen. Through faith. Not sure if I've got enough faith, Pastor. So faith cometh by hearing and hearing by the word of God. Amen. Just keep listening to the word. God will give you faith. Pastor, I want to trust Jesus as my Savior. But I'm not sure that I can become what God would want me to be. You can't. That's the whole point. Yeah. What you can do is surrender to him. What you can do is realize, I can't do anything, God, would you save me? I can't do anything, God, would you live through me? He loves you this morning because he created you. And because he sees what he can make you if you'll surrender to him. Would you this morning accept his grace? Christian, would you let his grace guide your life? Would you let him empower you to become what he wants you to be? Person here this morning that's wondering, can, I, can this really be for me? Oh, it's for you. And he loves you. And he's dying. He died literally that he might extend that gift to you this morning. Would you accept it?